Good morning. We are uh, getting close to Christmas, if you haven't noticed. Uh, you guys ready? Everybody got their presents purchased? You're like me. You haven't even started, have you? Uh, you know, as we jump into this new series, uh, He Is, we're looking at Isaiah 9, uh, specifically in verse 6. Uh, because as we look at the context of what is going on in the time of Isaiah, you have uh, the division in the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, uh, and the northern kingdom that it's called Israel, uh, or Ephraim, there in the divided kingdom. And there is a lot of chaos happening during that time period. Uh, and really, you could uh, sum it up in a lack of peace. Right? There's a lack of peace there. Uh, many of their problems uh, would uh, amount to much more than what we deal with, but in the same way, we can distill it all down to a lack of peace uh, in our present circumstances. And of course, as you look at uh, Ephraim or Israel and Northern Kingdom, uh, they are staring at the face of the Assyrian nation who's coming down to take them over, which they end up doing in the life of Isaiah. But even the Southern Kingdom, which we would call the faithful kingdom, who, who ends up facing its demise to Babylon because of their own disobedience. But the Southern Kingdom is still the kingdom of uh, David's line, uh, still those that, that God promised that he would uh, keep a remnant uh, and, and do a great work in, in the life of uh, Judah because of uh, his commitment to King David uh, in the past. But all of this, really, we see in picture in the light of calamity, chaos, anxiety. And this is really where we find ourselves in the text. Uh, and as I was researching uh, the sermon and the text, I was also thinking about the own problems that we have in our culture with anxiety, with the amounting pressure that we have in our culture. Uh, and I found uh, one survey that was published on a website that said that three in five Americans feel that their mental health is negatively impacted by the holidays. And so they took uh, these who they surveyed and they gave them a test. And then a year later, they followed up with them and they re-examined them. And here's what they found. Out of the ones that they had uh, surveyed a year prior... This next year, 60% 60 of those people reported an increase in anxiety. So it was already bad and it got worse. Uh, on top of that, 52% felt an increase in depression. Uh, and 70% felt more financial stress than the year before. Uh, this study also found that more than 56% of Americans uh, would rather cancel the holidays due to the stress of, and anxiety that they have. Isn't that a shame? Right? We have an opportunity, uh, specifically, this is talking about everyone, but even as a church, right, as, as Christians, those who have been set apart, uh, we have an opportunity to utilize this time of year to proclaim uh, the greatest truth that it has ever been uh, and the greatest peace that has ever come to earth on our behalf. We have an opportunity to propagate and to proclaim that truth, but yet these are the statistics that we find ourselves in. Now, uh, as a Christian, if you're a Christian in here, you believe in, in the Bible as you ought to, uh, you understand that the problem of peace is the real problem that we have with God. Uh, and even when your problem of peace with God, that is you're separated from a holy God and through responding to the grace of Christ who has made peace through his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, right? Even if you're those who responded to that, you still, if you were being honest and truthful and transparent and authentic, which you ought to be, especially if you call Compass home, 
you could admit to dealing with other problems in your life, right? Uh, we would call smaller problems, but still problems. People often tell me that, you know, there's good things about having a growing church, right? You got to find more space. You got you to find more people, more ministry. And they say, these are good problems. And I said, yeah, but they're still problems and they got to be solved. Uh, and in the same way, although as Christians, if you're in here and you are a Christian, which I hope a number of you are, uh, you still realize that the big problem is solved, but there are still little problems that need to be solved in amongst that. Now, what we're going to find, which is really a thesis, a part of the sermon, is there is the, the other end of the spectrum. Uh, those who think they have a lot of little problems, but really they have one big problem. And when that big problem is taken care of, the smaller problems, uh, we have tools and ability uh, and gifts from God to take care of those situations as well. And we're going to see, as we look into the text of Isaiah, uh, how even the people of that time didn't take the tools that God had given them, that they would have peace. Uh, and yet God's still promising in the future to bring a hope and a peace to that country despite their unfaithfulness. And so as you look, and I, I hope you do in your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking specifically at verse 6, but I'm going to have you guys hopping all around Isaiah 8 and 9 as we look at the context and see in what context and what place that we uh, are introduced to a coming of our Messiah who will be the wonderful counselor. Uh, because as, as we look, as you're flipping to the text, I, I want you to understand that without the proper perspective of Christ, if you don't see Christ for who he is, not for who we've made him to be, not for what society says about him, but if we don't see Christ for how the Bible has given him to us and explained him and described him and as truly as he uh, has came and described himself, as the Father has come and unveiled him to us, if we don't see Christ in, in that way, there's really no chance of you uh, having peace this Christmas, or, or really for, for any time for that matter. Uh, but it really is you uh, in doing what the disciples had to do when, when Jesus looked and said, well, Peter, who do you say that I am? And we all have to answer that question. And Isaiah 9, 6 goes a long way to tell us who he is. And again, like I was saying, for you and I, trusting in God through Christ for our main problem because that is, we do all have a main problem when it comes to our anxiety, when it comes to the lack of peace we have in our lives. The main problem is our need for a relationship with God. Uh, but once we meet that need through Christ, through responding to the gospel of Christ, uh, God then gives us tools to deal with the issues that we face in our lives. And this sermon is all about learning how to look at Christ and understand Christ in light of him being our wonderful counselor. And so if we do, let me reread Isaiah 9 and give you a little bit of the background. Look at Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. When we see that word Wonderful Counselor, I want you to notice something in the grammar, uh, that wonderful is not an adjective in, in this in the scripture. The actual uh, linguistic is that's a noun. The part of speech that is is a noun. And so it's not saying that this, this counselor is wonderful describing them. They're saying this is actually a noun, person, place, or thing. And so this is who Jesus is. He is a wonderful counselor or counselor of wonder. As a matter of fact, you don't see this word wonderful used in the Old Testament without it being linked to deity or being linked to God. As a matter of fact, what you see often uh, in the Old Testament, when this word is used, it's actually used to describe the works of God, like God's wonder, God's work, God's miracles. And so this word used in the Old Testament is describing 
God and what he is doing. And so in the same way we see here, uh, not that there's going to be a, a wonderful, he's going to be a good counselor. No, 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 no. This is, we're talking about God. We're talking about a the deity that is counselor uh, of wonder. As a matter of fact, even when Nicodemus meets Jesus in John 3, 2, uh, although he didn't confess Jesus to be God or to be Lord at this place and juncture in Scripture, he at least knows enough to say this, that no one man can do these signs, right, these wonders, if God is not with him. And so even uh, as people were looking at Christ in the Gospels and in the New Testament, they too could point and say, wonderful counselor. No one could do these if they weren't sent from God. And so when we look at the text and we look at the wonderful counselor, we are given a glimpse, at least in Isaiah's day, looking forward to what is to come in our Messiah. And it continues by giving the other names for Christ, that he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And so in Isaiah's day, like I told you, there's a lot of calamity, and there's a lot of calamity, and it's based solely upon the disobedience and sin of the northern kingdom and eventually also the southern kingdom. And so there's a, they're doing a lot of things. I mean, they're, they're going to the ends of uh, sacrificing their children like the nations around them. I'm, I'm saying that they're not just, I mean, these are sinners like we are. I mean, these people are sinning and, and disobeying the commands of the Lord, uh, but yet Isaiah, with all of this trouble and all of this judgment that's being pronounced on them by God, the one who brings judgment is also the one who brings hope. As a matter of fact, uh, without, uh, without judgment, there is no hope. And so when we look at the scripture, we see this judgment falling upon Israel, but there is also this expectation of hope. As a matter of fact, hope is the central message of the Old Testament. Uh, and in um, seminary, they'll teach you, or if you just read some commentaries, it's called our messianic promise or the messianic expectation. That all of the prophets in the Old Testament, as God is speaking through them, because that's the office of prophet in the Old Testament, we're not saying that these really wise people started talking to us about things that may or may not have been God. They're nice platitudes about God, or they said some nice things that would inspire us. That's not the work of a prophet in the Old Testament. A prophet in the Old Testament spoke as a mouthpiece of God. It was God speaking through the prophet to the people, a chosen instrument of God to give his words to the people. And so as we see that, we have Isaiah uh, being used as a mouthpiece by God and God saying, there is coming a time when I'm going to send to you a son and he is going to give you hope and promise And he's going to be your counselor of wonder, your wonderful counselor. And we see a lot of this all throughout the Old Testament. But what we need to know is central to the Old Testament is an expectation of a messianic figure who's going to come, who is a descendant of David, which if you've been here with us long, we've been talking about the line of David and the throne of David for months uh, through the book of Matthew and through the genealogy of Christ. And here we are again. That was the promise. So the Uh, prophets at that time knew this to be the case. They knew it's coming, the Messiah is coming, it's going to come through the line of David. As a matter of fact, Micah, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, was a contemporary of Isaiah. That means they were both prophesying during the same time period in history. Uh, He uh, further explains the identity of this Messiah in Micah 5.2 when he says this, that from Bethlehem shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And so as they're uh, 
finding who is this Messiah, uh, they, they come to the conclusion, because you have to, that this is going to be more than just a child that was born during that time, which if you understand how to interpret Scripture, and especially the Old Testament, you understand that there is both a, a context in which it's being spoken in, in which uh, it needs to be interpreted through, but there's also what we would call a full expectation of this promise being fulfilled. And so just like Isaiah is talking in Isaiah 9, that for us, a child is born, there was actually a child born during that time who met some of these uh, criteria of uh, the child who was going to be a sign of peace and hope to Jerusalem. Some people think it was Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. Some people believe it was Isaiah's son. But all of that was known very well in that time period. Uh, But the problem was, even when they looked at these people that they thought was going to be the messianic uh, figure, once they started reading more and they started reading, well, okay, I get that peace has now come to some extent in our time and God has fulfilled his promise. Uh, There's still some things that this child doesn't meet. Uh, This child isn't a mighty God. Nobody, I mean, they're not going to call people God who wasn't. That's a blasphemy in the Old Testament. Uh, he's He's not everlasting. I mean, he's a baby. He's not even a father yet, but he's definitely not everlasting father. And Micah says that his coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And so part of the messianic expectation was although that God had partially fulfilled that promise during that time, the prophets knew, and as they taught the people of Israel, they said there's coming a time in the future where this is going to be fully fulfilled. We call it a a full fulfillment of these prophetic promises of God given to the prophets. And that's exactly what we see here in Isaiah 9, 6. And so when we look at prophet Isaiah and we look at the prophets, we always need to understand there's an underlying central focus on the Old Testament messianic expectation. And you see it in Micah, you see it in Isaiah, you see it in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, and the the minor prophets as well. And then Isaiah continues going a couple of chapters later. I'll give you one verse in Isaiah 11 Uh, In verse 2, it says this, that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These things are what we can expect from the coming Messiah or from our stage in history, the Messiah that has come. And I'm laying this foundation for a very important reason. And 1 Peter lays out the reason why it's necessary to lay out the expectation of this being who Christ is. And if you at least jot down 1 Peter 1, jot down 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. We have to come through with Isaiah 9, 6 and say, what does this mean? Because what I don't want you to do, and I hope you never do, is anytime you step into a church and sit down and listen to a pastor preach, that you just say, yeah, whatever they say, that's got to be the truth. No, no, no. The text meant something during its time. And so as we look at this, we have them who uh, were inquiring when and how and predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But look at verse 12. But it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so those prophecies that were being preached by Isaiah by Micah, the ones that we have just looked at, are for you to have confidence in God's plan to bring a Messiah who would fulfill all of the expectations of Scripture. And so for you and for me, the Old Testament isn't just for the Jews. It isn't just for the past. It's for you and I now to say this Christ is exactly who was foretold millennia and millennia. As a matter of fact, ever since Genesis 3. 
that you and I get to witness the truth of Christ being our wonderful counselor. And so therefore, since we look at Isaiah 9-6, and it tells us that we're going to have a counselor of wonder who's going to be the fulfillment of all of these expectations, and he is going to be sufficient for your sins and mine, we have to do this, and it's point number one. If he's sufficient for my sins, and the Bible says he's going to be my counselor of wonder, a wonderful counselor, he's going to know how to lead me, he's going to know how to direct me, I need to do this, and it's discard the counsel of our culture. And And here's how we get to this, very quickly. He is sufficient for all things. As a matter of fact, when we get to the, more of the context of what is actually going on in Israel, we see that the problem of the northern kingdom, and specifically Ahaz in the southern kingdom, is faithlessness, a lack of faith and trust in the counsel of God. And so if we're going to say, this is Christ, this is who he is, I will trust in him, then therefore I have to look at him as the well of wisdom and counsel. Right? He is a, a deep well a well of of pure wisdom and counsel that I can draw from every day of my life and never run to the bottom and never miss out on anything in my life that could receive counsel, right? 2 Peter 1.3 says that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of his glories and excellencies. So through knowledge of God, I can know all the things that I need to do concerning life and godliness. So there's nothing outside the realms of God's counsel that, that, I, uh, that, that my life would uh, overrun. Does that make sense? Like everything in your life, whatever it is, can be found through the counsel and the well of the wisdom of Christ. Just to show you that in the context, Isaiah 8, 11 through 13, we see Judah, and they had issues with cultural counselor in their day that God had warned them sternly about. When you look at Isaiah 8, 11 through 13, this is what it says. For the Lord spoke thus to me. We're talking, Isaiah is saying this. Here's what the Lord said to me, Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me. He warned me not to walk in the way of this people. So there it is. God's already saying, Isaiah, I'm warning you and I'm warning you not to walk in the way of the people who are giving you this counsel that I'm telling you is wrong and ungodly. And here's what the counsel says, verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Well, what are they talking about? It's important to know the historical context of the situation. You have Judah, the southern kingdom, King Ahaz. You have the the northern kingdom, which Ephraim, or or Israel, uh, who was King Pekah at the time. And you had another northern neighbor over there, a King Rezin of Syria. And King Rezin and King Pekah of of these northern countries were pressuring Judah to make a pact with them to take on Assyria. Now, God makes it clear that that Israel, at least Judah at that time, uh, ought not to make pacts and, and commitments and covenants with other countries. They need to rely on God alone. And so it's going well so far, but they're afraid. They're afraid. The conspiracies that are going on is they're going to kill us. They're going to come get us. They're going to destroy us. They're going to take us over. And so these conspiracies and these, these stresses and anxieties and these worries were coming on to the, the southern kingdom at this time and the people therein. Uh, and this is what God says. Don't call conspiracy. You think they're conspiring against you? Don't call everything that you hear a conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. God tells over and over again, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Trust in me. Right? Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in armies. Don't trust in gold. Don't trust in nations. Trust in me. Uh, and this whole time, they're dealing with this conflict of the counsel of God versus the counsel of men. Here is the problem, though. In the historical context here, uh, Ahaz does something that kings 
of God ought not to do. Instead of aligning himself with them, he goes around and actually makes an alliance with Assyria. And he makes an alliance with Syria, and he says, he tells Assyria, I'm going to make a commitment to you. I'm even going to give you gold out of the treasury of the temple, and I'm going to ascribe allegiance to you. And so all these things that God asked the kings to do for him, Ahaz went and did that to the king of Assyria. Therefore, being disobedient in following the counsel of God. Because here's what God says in verse 13 of the Isaiah 8 text. You don't need to fear. Don't be in dread. But here's what you need to do, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. You see, the king Ahaz didn't fear God. He feared man. And in his fear of man, took the counsel of man and did contrary to the counsel of God. And that's why, point number one, as we look at it, discard the counsel of our culture, we have to make, uh, we have to make a confident statement on whose counsel we're going to trust. I'm either going to trust in the deep well of the counsel of God in Christ, or I'm going to trust in the counsel of the world. I'm going to have a fear of man, or I'm going to have a fear of God. Isn't that what, what Psalm is it 19 says? Or at the be- a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, for, uh, even in, in the Gospels, it teaches us, uh, Christ teaches us, do not fear the, the one who can kill the body and then thus do no more, but fear him rather who, after killing the body, has the power to throw the soul into hell. And so we see here this distinction of uh, the fear of man and the fear of God. And God makes it clear unequivocally throughout Scripture that our fear ought to be for one thing only, for God. And as we fear the Lord, which is a, such a good thing, right, as we fear Him and honor Him, He will also establish, establish our steps. And so, therefore, we need to discard the counsel of our culture. Uh, And to help us at least get that list started, I wrote down three things that our culture says that you and I need to discard. And so here's a list. You can add to this when you get home, but at least write these things down. Here's some things that our culture says that you need to discard immediately. Number one, uh, culture tells you to prioritize yourself, right? You need to to put yourself first. You need to uh, self-love, self-care, all these things. You can really sum that up in prioritizing yourself, uh, but Philippians 2, 3, the wisdom of God says this, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Right? So the scripture is teaching me that uh, contrary to prioritizing myself, I actually must prioritize others. I actually need to consider myself less significant than the people around me. It's interestingly, in my own counsel with people, what I find uh, is the people who are considering others as more significant than themselves, they find themselves uh, under a pile of the people that they're caring for. But you know what happens when you're under a pile? You got a lot of community on top of you, amen? Okay? All right, that's the good thing. Uh, But on the other end of that, I find people who are trying to prioritize themselves, which in order to prioritize yourself, you have to be standing on top of everybody else. And I have these people who look at me and say things like, I can't find any community. I'm like, you're standing on top of them. You need to consider others as more significant than yourself. Find yourself in and among the people of God uh, and serving them. And then you will also find in that a community of people who are meeting your needs as well. But if we spend our whole lives prioritizing ourselves, we spend our whole lives prioritizing the very wrong thing. We can't make ourselves first. There's even a cultural movement said that, that we're second. But the Bible doesn't even say that. The Bible says that we are last. And so we got to make sure that even though culture says prioritize yourself, it may sound counterintuitive, but often counsel of God does. 
Because the counsel of God is often contrary to our flesh and to our humanity, but it is always the best counsel. And I have yet to meet people who are truly in goodness and godliness through the counsel of Scripture who are prioritizing other people who have yet to find their own needs not met sufficiently. Secondly, our culture tells us this all the time. Uh, discover your true identity. You need to find yourself. I'm just trying to find myself. I'm just trying to discover who I really am. Right? I, that's one of our, our cultural, uh, one of the cultural statements that, that our generations are inundated with. But when I look at Scripture, and it tells me in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, so, so I'm sitting here and I'm saying, okay, the Bible's teaching me that your, your race and your nationality isn't primary. Where you come from, right? Even, but even the idea of diversity isn't primary when it comes to our identity. But what does our culture want to make primary? Your, your geography, your nationality, and your race. That's what our culture wants to make foremost. But here it is. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free. Even in that time, uh, being a bondservant wasn't going to be your primary identity, even though that you're finding yourself uh, working uh, for another person throughout your life that still wasn't to demonstrate your main identity. Male and female, that's another one that we deal with in our culture. We try to put so much identity in being male and female that we find out what the identity of a male and female is, and then our culture wants to change it so that it can actually meet my desire for what my identity should be. And so we change what it means to be male and female because we think that's where we're going to find purpose and identity. But the reality is the scripture says there is neither Jew, Greek, slave, uh, or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We find our identity because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, just because we said that these things aren't where you find your identity, it doesn't mean you ought not to distinguish these things in your life. These things just ought not to be primary when it comes to our identity in Christ. It is good to have roles in male-female relationships. Right? It is not a bad thing to say, I'm from here and I'm from here. It's when those things become your identity and the things that you pursue to try to find your purpose and belonging in our society. And the Bible says, as a matter of fact, that is not how you should see your identity at all. Because verse 29 tells you in Galatians 3, if you are Christ, I love that, I am Christ, that's my identity, that's who I am, then you are Abraham's offspring. Ha, huh, there it is. As a matter of fact, if you look at my family tree, let me know when you find it, because I don't know a lot of my family tree. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't know anyone past the second generation. I don't know my, a lot of my great-grandparents. I don't know anybody outside of that. Uh, my father, grandfather told me one time he's adopted, and my last name wasn't even my real last name a couple generations ago. That being said, I have no desire to go search out those things, because I know this, that whoever my great-great-grandfather parents are and whoever my family is and wherever they came from pales in comparison to being Christ and an offspring of Abraham and an heir according to the promise of God. I am not going to find anything better than that. That is who I am. The beauty of being the offspring of Abraham is I'm now grafted in and a part of the promises of God in Christ. Therefore, my identity is found solely concretely in Christ. So whose am I? Who am I? What's my purpose? What's my identity? I belong to Christ. And I proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. That is who I am. I don't have to go find my identity. I have found it in Christ. And if you have found your identity in Christ, there is not another place you need to look for. You don't need to go to 23andMe. Right? You don't need to look up Ancestry, DNA. I mean, fine. All those things, fine. 
But you will never find your purpose in those things. You find your purpose in Christ. And thirdly, our culture wants to say this one. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. This is one of the the worst lies that our culture tells us. Because when I look at Scripture and I I look at verses like Luke 9.23, Luke 9.23 says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That doesn't sound like happiness, does it? Happiness means I indulge myself. I don't deny myself. I need more. Right? I was like, I'm not going to deny myself. Denying myself seems to make me unhappy. And so, but Christ looks at me and says, deny yourself, take up your cross. Well, that's another problem, at least chronologically speaking. As Imagine the disciples hearing Christ say, take up your cross, when Christ has yet to even be crucified. They didn't even know that Christ was going to be crucified on a cross. So Jesus is saying this purely in a Roman context. Also, if we look forward, we then look back and with great meaning, we now know that taking up your cross means to follow Christ in his sufferings. But in that time, as the disciples were hearing Christ say this, they're like, that's a Roman torture device. So not only are you telling me to say no to myself, you're telling me to take up the suffering of a torturing cross in my life? That doesn't sound happy. That doesn't sound like living my best life now. That sounds like not living my best life at all. But it says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. I love this. I'm then following someone else, right? And they're my leader, right? That is the definition of being a disciple, is they are now my instructor. I am their pupil. So therefore, I imitate their life. So therefore, I'm not my own, as a matter of fact. I got to follow the statutes and, and the commands of someone else completely. And in order for me to be happy in my culture, I've got to do what? Fulfill my own happiness, make my own rules, make my own plans. But that is not what we find in the pages of Scripture. In Scripture, it tells me, if you want to come after me, that is, you want to be my disciple, you want to be a Christian. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be saved, a disciple is what the Bible calls. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. But I want you to know, I mean, that's just three. I mean, there are so many other things that our culture says that the Bible stands in direct opposition to what culture tells us is good for us versus what God tells us what is good for us. And if we're not careful, we're going to do the, run into the same problem that uh, Ephraim and Israel and then Judah got into when they were following the counsel of man and not the counsel of God, and they found themselves on the wrong side of history. And with all the talk in our culture being on the wrong side of history, We need to be really, really sure that we understand where our counsel comes from and what we ought to do with it. All right, look look back at Isaiah 9, 7, the verse after our main verse. So so we know we have the identity of uh, of Christ uh, pointed out there in Isaiah 9, 6, but then it continues by talking about his scope of leadership. Look at his scope of leadership there in verse 7. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So there's this reality that, that as, and this is, we talk about future prophecy and future future, and we want to talk about it, but I have been in conversations with people about it recently, because when you talk about Christ, we're almost always talking about a, a, a prophecy in the Old Testament, Micah's, the uh, Isaiah passages, and, and others similar. Uh, you run into this idea that like, okay, uh, what, about, what about the future and what about the future future? For instance, uh, it says here that the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Well, isn't, hasn't Christ already came? Say this. Say yes. Okay. Uh, hasn't Christ already come to save us from our sins? But is Christ reigning in his government of no end right now? Better not be. That doesn't sound biblical. Whatever's going on right now doesn't sound like the reign of Christ over the government, does it? 
And so this is a perfect example of the reality that a lot of the promises of God in Christ and him coming to die for the sins of the world, like Isaiah teaches us at the end of Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah, is partially fulfilled. But there is still more fulfillment yet to come, which lies in the meat of Christianity. That you, why do we live for Christ now? Because there's more to come, right? It didn't just end at the cross and at the resurrection. Christ is going to do, there's more coming, right? That's why we have zeal and joy and courage and, and just amazing enthusiasm and zeal for the Lord because we're like, this ain't over yet, guys. It just, it just started. This whole thing just started because here's the, here's the truth. There's coming a time where the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, On the throne of David, that's the promise, remember, the Davidic covenant, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There's coming a time where Christ is going to be established as ruler over all the nations and it will be eternal. And because of that, I want you to pay attention to the verse 7 when it says this, that end of peace, there will be no end. What is the the goal of counseling? Peace. Peace. Right? Isn't that the goal of counseling? We have a lot of people come to counseling at our church, and they want peace. Like how, what, what can we do for you? Well, we just want, to be, we just want peace. Well, here's the reality of the, the uh, culmination of God's plan for peace. Peace is going to happen when Christ reigns in totality over all things. Now, however, there is in the already, what we had just talked about, the offer of peace with God through Christ now, that doesn't mean things are going to be perfect, but it is us living in light of the future right now because we too can have a real peace because of our wonderful counselor who is Christ. Because, put it this way, the problem of peace in our world isn't simply an inner peace like we hear. You know, I just want more inner peace. I just want to be more, I just want to come to the fullness of the peace that is somewhere. They, they can't really tell me where, but somewhere, okay? Uh, but I said, what if the problem isn't inner peace? What if the problem isn't your subjective idea of inner peace, but really it's a lack of peace that you have is really a microcosm of the absence of peace in God in our world, right? Really the problem is not an absence of your peace. It's an absence of the peace of God in our world, And that is the story of Genesis. That's the story of all of Scripture, is that there is an absence of peace with God in our whole society. With Adam and Eve, that's why they got taken out of the garden. That's why we see all throughout history people living at odds and at enmity with God. There is therefore no peace with God. Now, I I say it that way because let me illustrate it in this way. Imagine a, a man going to the doctor, and he goes to the doctor and he says, Doc, I've been losing a lot of weight. As a matter of fact, I'm four pants size down. Uh, And it's getting to an unhealthy place, and I need to fix my weight loss, and I need you to put me on a diet for weight gain so that I can get rid of this this problem. I know there's bigger problems out there, but this is just the one I'm dealing with, and I need some help. Uh, And the doctor says, okay, well, let's run some tests. And the doctor runs some tests, and he comes back to the man, and he says, sir, your problem isn't weight loss. Your problem is cancer. As a matter of fact, if I put you on the greatest diet in the world, it's not going to fix your real problem. Your real problem is bigger than that, and it really, uh, this small problem that you're dealing with is a symptom of what is really, really going on in your life. And I can't tell you in the same way how many times that we talk about this in counseling with people. It's like, I get that you're dealing with other things and those other problems, but oftentimes in your life, those problems, and specifically if you're in here, if you're a non-Christian, this is in almost totality the reality that you sit in, uh, is that all of the issues you're dealing with as far as your anxiety and your fears uh, are all 
small uh, symptoms of the bigger problem going on, which isn't weight gain, it's cancer. It isn't the fact that you are anxious about the holidays. It's the fact that you have no peace with God. And this is an opportunity, which I, you know, God using all things for good, right? I don't like that there's anxiety in the holidays. I talked about that earlier. There's no reason for it. We should be glorifying God in this. But God using all things for good is using an opportunity for sermons like this to be preached, to say, hey, if you're having anxiety during the holidays, there's something messed up in the peace that you're having with God. And as a matter of fact, that is the main problem that we run into in our culture, is peace with God. So therefore, it says that Christ is going to come and there will be, an end, there will be no end to the peace, as a matter of fact, we know that because Ephesians 2 tells us. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 say this, But now in Christ, Jesus, you who are once far off, right, there was a chasm between you and God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You want peace? You want peace, you have to have a nearness with God. And the problem with our lives is we have a separation between us and God. There's a chasm that cannot be filled by you and me, that has to be filled by Christ. And so therefore, we have been brought near by the blood, that is the sacrifice of Christ, that is he was the penalty and the payment for our sin. Okay? You and I have a chasm and a problem with God, no peace with God, because of our animosity with God. And you say, I don't have any animosity. Yes, you do. Or at least if you don't, God has some with you because you've broken all of his laws and you've broken all of his commandments. He tells you not to lie, you lie anyway. He tells you not to steal, you steal anyway. He tells you not to commit adultery, you commit adultery anyway. He tells you to honor him alone as Lord, but yet you have all these other things that you honor more than him. And so therefore you're an enemy with God based on your own testimony and witness of your life. And therefore you then need a, a mediatorial counselor who can fulfill that need in your life. There's a chasm that needs to be filled. And so therefore we have Ephesians 2 that tells us what Christ did. You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Right? He is our peace. That's the real problem here, a lack of peace with God. And now, therefore, we can have peace with God through Christ. Right? If you're searching for peace, you understand that's why Christ came, to uh, firmly establish his peace, particularly now in the lives of his people, his church, but uh, inevitably over all of the world. And it doesn't actually miss the context of Isaiah because that's exactly why Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah because of a lack of peace and God's plan for peace. So it's the same thing that we've been dealing with throughout all of history and all of time is that there is a great need for people to have peace with God and we have that through Christ. And so you may be in here dealing with symptoms, anxiety, depression, all these other lesser things, although real, although genuine, they are still lesser than the peace that we need to fix between you and a holy, perfect, just God. And because of that, I want you to, to write it this way. Summarize all that up in point number two. You need to entrust yourself to the peace of Christ. Entrust yourself to the, to the peace of Christ. And we're going to get to the other things, right? Well, what about dealing with the lesser things? I know you want to deal with the lesser things, but as the doc says, we got to fix the big thing first. got to fix the major thing, and then we'll get to the lesser things. At first, we've got to fix the big things. And then we have to ask the question, well, if I want to trust myself to the peace of Christ, uh, in order to have peace with Christ, God has to be pleased with me. Right? That, that is a the theologically accurate statement. As a matter of fact, you see that in Luke 2. Luke 2, 12 through 14 says this. It's another infant narrative of Jesus' birth. And here's what it says. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, if you uh, listen to the uh, Christmas song, you don't hear that translation, do you? The Christmas song you hear, and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Okay, well, that's a bad translation. As a matter of fact, you can know that because most of your translations in here are actually going to say this, and if it doesn't, it's because it's missing a Greek letter, a sigma, that actually would explain to whom, who qualifies, who gets peace, right? And you see that here uh, in Luke 2 where it says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so therefore, if I want peace with God, God therefore has to be pleased with me, right? That's a theologically accurate statement. But here's a problem practically, God's not pleased with me. As a, as a matter of fact, Scripture says in Romans that no one is righteous, not even one. And so the problem in my life is genuinely the fact that I don't have peace with God because God is not pleased with me. So therefore, for me to be right with God, somehow God has to be pleased. That's, that's a good statement, right? I mean, even a judge or a, a justice, right? In order uh, for there to be peace after crime has been done, there has to be a time in which the judge is pleased with the situation in front of him that he will hit his gavel and he will say, court adjourned. In the same way, we have a God who says, until these things are made right and God is pleased through justice and holiness, and until that has happened in the lives of people, the gavel has not been thrusted to the ground and there is therefore no peace with God. Now, where's the good, excuse me, the good news? Here it is, Matthew 3. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. If God is well pleased in his son, and God is well pleased in all those who would turn away from their sins, trust in Christ who pleases the Father, therefore we are pleasing not in and of ourselves, but through Christ. Through being clothed in his righteousness, we therefore, as the reformers would say, have an alien righteousness in our lives. It does not belong to you and I, but it is from Christ, but yet still totally belongs to you and I who have turned from our sins and placed our trust in Christ. So therefore, you and I can have peace. We can deal with the cancer, right? We can deal with the big problems. Are there other problems? Yes. Any Christian, any pastor is telling you there are other problems you're going to deal with in your life. But the, the cancer, that's, that's, we got to deal with that before we can deal with these other things. And so for us, we can have the peace. We can have the answer of peace in our lives by recognizing our need to be at peace with a holy God and by turning from our sins and placing our trust in Christ. That's just the gospel. And that's what we rest our entire hope on here at Compass and Christians around the world. And I get it. Because when you have when you have peace with God, even as you're a Christian, you're going to be dealing with things, right? How many of you guys are, you know, if you're, you're a Christian, and I hope you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, I want you to turn from your sins and place your trust in Christ and be a Christian, okay? Uh, but if you're, if you're a genuine Christian in here, like, raise your hand if you have other problems in your life. All right, I want to meet with you guys out here. Everyone else can go home, okay, because <laughs> you don't need the rest of the sermon. Uh, the reality is we have other things to deal with, so therefore, now what? Because that's where we always get the now what, but the problem is you don't get to the now what, because at the end of the day, no matter what the now what is, the problem has been solved. However, as we're here, 
Christ also has been gracious and loving and steadfast to give us tools to use to fix the other things in our lives in his power. I want you to look at that. And you can look at that in Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8. See, we're staying right there in that whole text. All of this is found right there as we apply it to our New, New Testament church. Isaiah 8, 16 through 20. Remember, Isaiah is talking to this wayward people. Uh, and so he's prophesying, and he says this in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among the disciples. So there were some things that, as he said and he wrote down, he binded up and he gave it to the disciples and to what, what we know isn't been disseminated to, to the country, to the nation. And he says in verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Right? There's a message for all of us who are even under the discipline of the Lord. Right? Even when uh, Judah, which is the house of Jacob, was in discipline, Isaiah, who was also under that corporate discipline, under that umbrella of the nation, he still says, although that I'm being disciplined by God and our nation is being disciplined by God, I will hope in him. Don't we hear that in Job? Right? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Right? I mean, it's the same thing that the disciples were saying when Jesus says, you're going to leave too? And they're like, well, where else would I go? Right? That is, that's the intention and the reality of the Christian is even when there are things going on in my life, especially the discipline of the Lord, where else should I go? I am here. I'm where I need to be. So therefore, he says, I'm going to hope in him. God, I'm going to hope in you even though all these things are happening. Verse 19, and when they, we're talking about the council of the world, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, or, I mean, these are uh, things that in our current culture, although publicly you don't hear a lot about, there is a lot of underlying uh, truths that come from our uh, interest in our culture with mediums and necromancers, because if you know what a necromancer is, it tells you in uh, the rest of that verse, there are people who are talking to live people on behalf of the dead. These are people who through occult practices or demonic influences are reaching through and talking uh, to dead people trying to receive counsel. Which Think of the wickedness of that. Right? We have counsel from God. Isaiah's trying to give them counsel and they're like, let's go talk to people who didn't make it. Right? Let's, let's go talk to people who died and it didn't work out for them. Maybe they can give us something. Right? Instead of just saying, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. As a matter of fact, it says here, Isaiah's like, you say you need to inquire of these mediums, right? I need to go to my astrological signs. I need to, I need to go to these people who are trying to find this higher knowledge that's apart from the deep well of the wisdom of God. And, and these people, and it says in verse 19, who chirp and mutter. It said, should not people inquire of their God? Well, yeah. I mean, that's a rhetorical question. Should not people inquire of their God? Yes, that is the problem. But in so many times when it comes to the lesser things in our lives, we won't inquire of God. We go to all these other places. I go to the counseling place down the street. I go, I go to my, my best friend down the road who their life's a wreck too. I don't know why I'm asking them for any help, you know, or I'm going, to, I'm going to all these other places. And it's like, here's what the Bible says. Should not a people inquire of their God? Shouldn't they go to God first? And it, and it talks about inquiring of dead people on behalf of the living like we already talked about. But verse 20 is my favorite. I say this uh, in my head all the time when I'm dealing with problems, and I say it kind of like a superhero. Uh, it, in verse 20, it says, to the teaching and to the testimony. Like, whenever I have a problem in my life, I'm like, to the teaching and to the testimony, because that's where I'm running, like right there. And I love that, because Isaiah is looking and saying, you guys have all these problems, and you won't even go to the word of God. Like he's saying, to the testimony, to the teaching, they're going to give you direction on where you ought to go from here. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should we not go to the teaching and to the testimony? 
And I love what it says after that. If they, again, they're talking about the council of the world. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If people will not give you counsel from God's word, it's because they have no dawn. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a literary way to say there's no light there, right? They have, they're, in, they're in darkness, right? They have nothing good to give you that is going to lead you to peace with God. But so many times in our lives, those are the first places we go. Right? And before, it sounds like I'm just stepping on your toes, which maybe I am, but I'm stepping on mine too. You know, really ask yourselves the hard question. When you're dealing with problems, do you go to the teaching and to the testimony? I mean, the first place you go, is, it, is are you worrying about it, being anxiety about it, venting about it, telling people about it? Or is the first place you go to the teaching and to the testimony? That is the Bible, the Word of God. Right? Do you try to figure out who could fix these problems? Or do you say, should not I inquire of God? Should I not first inquire of God? Because the reality is that so many of our lesser problems that we were talking about, right, once the big problem is solved, we then have the Holy Spirit of God that lives in us, who has given us the testimony and the teaching, He's given us his word to guide us. And so therefore, as our big problem of peace has been dealt with, God has endowed us with his Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said. Do you remember that? He said, listen, it's better that I go. It's like, Jesus, it's better that you leave? Jesus said, yeah, yeah, it's better that I leave. Because when I go, I'm going to send you a helper who will guide you in all the truth. And so we have peace with God through Christ. And Christ says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if you've, you've read the Gospels, the, the responsibility is to what? Convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Isn't that what Scripture does? Isn't that what the Holy Spirit does in life? You do something wrong and the Spirit pricks you and says that was wrong. Or the Holy Spirit, you know, as you're living in community with other people, as you're reading scripture, it says you are doing this, here's what you should do. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do. Also, why a lot of people don't like coming to church, because the very thing that is a gift to us, which is the Spirit, is the very thing people don't want running their life, because they want the counsel of the world and not the counsel of God. But we'll leave that there and talk about that later, okay? The reality that you and I have is we do have help. Right? We have the teaching and the testimony. We have God who has given us peace through his Son, and the way I try to say it to our people all the time is you have, uh, you have the word of God, which is scripture, working through the spirit of God with the people of God. And you're going to need all those things to deal with the problems that you're dealing with in your regular life. You have the spirit of God living in you. The spirit of God, the, spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who's, who's written the Bible, spoke through the apostles, spoke through the prophets as they were being carried along and wrote all these things down. And therefore, we have that same spirit living in us who then is taking his word and guiding us in it and, and with that whole time as we have peace with God and the spirit's working in us to illuminate the text to us so we can apply it. And then guess what we have? Hundreds of other people in God's family here who get to say, you know what, I'm, I'm doing that too. I'm, I'm inquiring of the teaching and testimony too because I'm having some problems too. And we all are being built up as a temple to God, as a fragrant offering to him. It's all part of God's plan for you to deal with the smaller things. But you have to deal with the bigger things because finally, the last thing i got to say about this, um, if you're going to employ biblical counsel to every area of life, and that's point number three, I want you to write that down. You need to employ biblical counsel to every area of your life, and that's what we're talking about here. Employ biblical counsel to every area of life. But here's the last thing I was going to say about this when it comes to this point. There's a reason why, because you say, okay, if I just need the Bible, then why, then why do I have to be a Christian? And it's all right there. I mean, joke's on you. You done gave me all the instructions. Uh, but the, here's the problem. You have to have the Spirit of God working 
with the word of God in your life. And here's why. In counseling, I often will meet with people in counseling. Uh, and, you know, we have all these little problems we want to deal with. But in biblical counseling, I will only preach the gospel to a non-Christian. All right, because here's the problem. If I do anything but preach the gospel to a non-Christian with God's word, I'm creating a legalist. I'm creating someone who, if you can just do things the Bible says, and somehow you're gonna, God's going to be pleased with you. And somehow, because that's the problem, right? Like, I have all these problems and I need them fixed. Well, your biggest problem can't be fixed if you don't have a relationship with Christ. And so, therefore, in counseling, the biblical counseling, you have to have Christ. Because I'm not going to create a legalist. I'm not going to try to make somebody who doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to try to apply God's word when it says over and over again that you can do no good thing apart from me. And so, therefore, if, I, if we can do no good apart from God, I need him to help me to lead me, to empower me, to fulfill his word. And so therefore, that's why when it comes to employing biblical counsel to every area of your life, you got to fix the big problem before you fix the smaller problems. we got to have peace with God before we can have peace in other areas of our lives. It's the truth of scripture. And I know that I can use all of scripture to bring that about because the scripture bears witness and testimony to that. When it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's a relief. I thought I was having to listen to Paul's opinions. I'm not. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's your counsel. The word of God, empowered by the, the spirit of God, working with the people of God to instruct and teach and counsel and admonish us that we may be equipped and prepared for every good work. You know what somebody who's prepared and equipped doesn't have? Anxiety. They have trust and they have confidence. And so therefore, for you guys, I mean, just the practical things. And we, I've said them over and over again, but in words that we use, you need more Bible in your life, church. You need to be spending more time in the Word of God. You need to be spending more time in church, right? More time in church, not less. I mean, I, I pray that this sermon was a blessing to you, and if it was, it should help you see why it's important that you sit under the, the teaching of God's word on a regular basis, because it does help you deal with the other problems. Preaching should always deal with the main problem, but it should never leave out the smaller problems either. But it should deal with all of them, and we can't deal with the small ones unless we've dealt with the big one. You also need small groups, life groups. This is a commercial for life groups. You need to be in a life group because the problem is, is even when you leave here, that pastor said what he said, and I believe it, I'm going to go do it. With who? You need people to live that out with. So go find you a life group. When we get out of here, go get in a life group. It's important for your faith, for you to grow in maturity, to find a life group. And then, listen, if you're still dealing with problems, we want to say go to counseling. Like through the power of the Spirit, because of our peace with God, through the power of the Spirit, through his word, we just want to guide you in the truth of Scripture to apply it to your life so you too can have peace. That's biblical counseling in a nutshell. And we want you to have that. As a matter of fact, you can go onto our website, compasshillcountry.org, uh, and at the very top on our banner, there's a, uh, a tab that says counseling. You hit that counseling tab, you fill it out as detailed as you can. Please give us a heads up, like, let us know what's going on, uh, and then we'll schedule counseling, and you have biblical counseling with people at our church. Okay. That's something we offer to our church. It's something we offer to the community, and it's free. Because we aren't, well, number one, we're not going to make you pay for the wisdom of the Lord. Uh, and two, <laughs> we're not going to stand in the way of anyone finding peace with God in Christ. And so with that, guys, I want to ensure, before you leave here, as I close, simply this, that you deal with the big problem, 
I know with a congregation this size at the 11 o'clock, there's a lot of people here who don't know Christ. And there's a lot of people here who sit in a lot of anxiety and a lot of issues. And I'm saying you've probably noticed over and over again, you recapitulate all these problems all the time. And when you come down to the bottom of it, it's because you haven't dealt with the big problem. You haven't dealt with your peace problem with a holy, just, perfect God. And that holy, just, perfect God who's also loving has created a way for you to have peace with him in Christ. And that offer is there. And he, he says, respond. Jesus says it. Repent and believe in me in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can do that. Uh, but when we deal with these big problems, church, for the rest of us, like I really want you to know that God has a, a plan and a purpose for all the other things going on in your life. And he truly gives you tools and gives our church ways to help work through the issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And it's all in line with faithfulness toward him and trust in him. That's my prayer this Christmas. As a matter of fact, I'd like you to pray as we close in prayer, that we'd pray this for our church. Let's pray. God, I do pray for this congregation, for this church, God, that you would... uh, God, help us, uh, even as we, we are looking to your word and we're looking for counsel from, uh, from the testimony and, and the scriptures, God, that you would you'd help us not find peace if we're Christians. We found it in Christ, but to utilize the tools that you've given us uh, and really even the person of the spirit that you have uh, graciously uh, put in each of us as Christians uh, to trust in you wholly and fully uh, to live a life, God, that honors you and to live a life uh, that does come with so much joy and so much fulfillment, which doesn't uh, disclude pain. It doesn't disclude uh, problems in our lives. But even in those things, as Paul said, that I rejoice even in my sufferings for the glory of God. So I pray that for our church, God, and that we would be ambassadors this Christmas, that we wouldn't allow the commercialization of Christmas to take away the, the purpose of us celebrating this time of year. And I pray that we would use this time wisely as a church Uh, even as we have our big celebration, God, next week, that we would invite people to come hear the gospel, the grace of God, and that we would celebrate all you're doing uh, in this community for your glory and for the good of people. So God, we do lift up this all to you, even as we continue worshiping, all in Christ's name, amen.